And today we're going to be continuing looking at the parables that Jesus was teaching about. And I have good news. We're actually going to be going backwards in Matthew. So that's exciting. If you've you know, been fatigued in our Matthew series, hold on to hope. Um, but we're actually going to be looking at five verses that were in the middle of the section that Pastor Ken taught on last week between the parable of the wheat and the weeds and then Jesus explaining those things. And uh, one of the things that we're going to be looking at is the idea of being stuck. So I want you to just take one moment and think of a time when you were stuck. could be a pretty serious time that you were stuck. It could be kind of a lighthearted time. You got thrown out in the cold and locked outside. But now take a moment and think, what feelings did you have when you were stuck? What emotions do you remember when you were stuck? There's a wide range of opportunities that we have to be stuck. And as I thought about times that I was stuck or that people I care about were stuck, a couple came up right away as I looked through my um, photos on my phone. And the first one here is actually a Pastor Will. Uh, if you look carefully, you can see that he's right there in the middle car and our six foot three youth pastor needed to climb in from his back passenger seat and then over his front seat and then into his driver's seat because he was very stuck. And then that's my shadow there in front of his car laughing at him and taking a picture. So maybe empathy is not my strong suit. Um, or I, I also thought of my good friend, Missy Armstrong, who on our Wyoming trip found herself literally hanging from the center of her tent uh, and stuck in that situation. Um, but all kidding aside, more times than not when we're stuck, it's not quite so funny. Sometimes some of us feel like we are stuck in the jobs that we are in. Sometimes we feel like we are out of control, that we know how we got into something and it wasn't what we thought it was going to be, but we don't know how to get ourselves out of that situation. Sometimes I think we feel stuck with relationships, with people that we care about, where they make choices and we wish we could control the situation or help them make better decisions, but they don't. I think a lot of us have felt stuck lately concerning health, whether it's our own health or the health of our loved ones. And this prevailing feeling of powerlessness to change the outcomes of our situations makes us feel stuck. Sometimes when we're stuck, we know the way out but it's incredibly costly. And maybe we're not sure if it's worth the cost it would take. And the good news this morning is that I think Jesus felt stuck sometimes. I think we see this very clearly when we look at Jesus the night before he went to the cross, when he prayed to his father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, this cup of suffering, this cup of God's righteous wrath against sin, if that's possible, let it pass from me. I think Jesus felt stuck because he knew the incredible cost that it was going to take for him to complete the mission that his father had given to him. 
And I think these parables that we're going to look at this morning, I think Jesus gave them to his disciples and gave them to his followers because he knew that we would also feel stuck sometimes. So we're going to turn in our Bibles in just a moment to Matthew chapter 13. But before we do, let's ask the Lord's help as we get started. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege it is to look at your word, to to read it, and with the help of your spirit to understand it. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room that you would help us to see Jesus differently because of our time here together. And I pray that you would help us live in ways that are pleasing to him. We need your spirit's help to do those things, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's look at this five-verse chunk here in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. Matthew 13, 31 to 35. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Matthew writes, Here is another illustration or parable Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches. Verse 33, Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, It permeated every part of the dough. Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. He never spoke to them without using such parables. This fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet. Quote, I will speak to you in parables. I will explain things hidden since the creation of the world. Okay, so if you're anything like me, the first time I read through those five relatively short and seemingly simple verses, I thought, I think I understood all of those words, but I don't have any idea what that means. Just being honest. So if you're like me, here's a couple of my questions that I had, and I'm sorry, these are a little bit harder to see than I thought they would be. But my first question is, what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of heaven? It's a theme that we've talked about a lot in Matthew, but exactly where are we and what does that mean? And that's really important to know before we set up a contrast or a comparison. Secondly, where does mustard even come from? Have you, have you ever thought about that before? I did not until 10 days ago ever think about where mustard comes from except for the little very starkly yellow bottle at the grocery store. Uh, But we'll talk about that briefly. Third, isn't yeast usually a bad thing? In the Bible, usually when yeast is used as a comparison, it's not a good thing. But Jesus is here using it, it seems like, in saying something good about the kingdom of heaven. So we'll look into that. And then lastly, doesn't Jesus want people to understand what he's saying? It seems that Jesus is using these stories, and I think it would be to be helpful for people to understand, but it kind of still seems hard to understand. And there's times he's speaking with the purpose of people not understanding him. 
So we'll look at that as well today. So those are the four things we're going to spend our time on. The kingdom of heaven, mustard, yeast, and why Jesus is speaking the way he's speaking. So first, let's review with the kingdom of heaven just a little bit. Okay? In the Old Testament, the idea of the kingdom of heaven is a common theme. It's a common idea. And it's prevalent throughout all of the Old Testament. And there's a couple of key features that go with the kingdom of heaven. I think the first one is this idea of God being victorious, of God coming and fighting his people's battles, of defeating their enemies, and then after being victorious, setting up his kingdom and his rule where justice and peace will reign from shore to shore, where God is going to make the wrongs of the world right. And the third part of that is that God is going to again be present with his people. If we remember in the Garden of Eden, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, but because of sin, they were kicked out of the garden. And so much of the Old Testament is focused on how can God be present with his people. And there was a common understanding that at the end of the age, God was going to come back. All right, good enough. Okay, so I'll try not to move too far from the pulpit. So that was a common uh, understanding with the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament. And there was incredible anticipation uh, for what God was going to come and do. And in fact, there's a really interesting passage in Daniel chapter 4. If you all remember Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel was brought to Babylon and he had some very interesting experiences. And the king of that time was the pagan king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And there's this instance in Daniel chapter 4 where he has a dream. And Daniel comes to interpret his dream for him. And Daniel gets really nervous. And he doesn't really want to tell the king this super bad news. But basically, God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar in this incredible way. And from the lips of a pagan king in Babylon... This is what he says about God's kingdom. Coming out of this incredible time of humili humiliation, he says, I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. Now, I chose that example because if that is spoken from the lips of a pagan king who God used to punish his, and discipline his children, how much more so is that a reality that was looked forward to? Okay, so then we come to the time of the New Testament. And much of our focus on this is going to be in what Matthew has said in the New Testament. We see in Matthew that the kingdom of heaven is talked about in a number of different ways. And I think this contributes to us struggling to understand exactly what is meant by Matthew or Jesus in talking about the kingdom of heaven. In the first couple chapters of Matthew, we heard several times that the kingdom of heaven is near. In the beginning of chapter 3, when John the Baptist came and was baptizing people, he was preaching the repentance of sins and telling people, turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
When Jesus began his public ministry in chapter 4, Jesus began to preach, and he began to preach, repent of your sins, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So there's a sense that the kingdom of heaven is near and coming, and it's building in anticipation. A couple chapters later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, we get the sense that the kingdom is here in a certain way. We read about Jesus in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, talking about how people who are his followers should be living. And we read things like, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We also read that God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Then one chapter ago in Matthew chapter 12, there's a fascinating verse where Jesus is being accused of casting out demons by Satan's power. And he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, If I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. So not only is the kingdom of heaven near, but there's a sense in Matthew's gospel that it is very present that it is a present reality in some ways. Then when we get to the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus dies and rises again, he tells his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so he's sending out his disciples to make more disciples and teach everything Jesus taught them. And then he tells them, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we see Jesus' presence with his people. Getting outside of Matthew and Philippians chapter 2, we see Paul talking about how Jesus, because of what he's done, is now exalted to this place of honor and kingship and that every knee is going to bow before him. But there's a but. There are also portions in Matthew that seem to talk about the kingdom of heaven in this yet future way that has not yet been fully realized. There's tension. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them, pray to your heavenly Father, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Mark's gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus also the night before he went to the cross, told his disciples that he would not drink wine again with them until the day he drank it new with them in the kingdom of God. And so I think part of the difficulty in understanding the comparisons that Jesus is making about the kingdom of heaven is to remember what Matthew has already told us, but also that we have to deal with this tension. That Jesus, when he came, he started something. But we also know that there is a yet further, more full future reality that we are looking forward to when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So that needs to suffice for our quick review of what we mean by the kingdom of heaven. With that in our minds, let's now look at what Jesus says about a mustard seed. In verses 31 and 32, Matthew says, here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches. So 
I found a picture of a mustard seed. And in Jesus' day, a mustard seed was the epitome of smallness. Okay, It was basically the closest thing you got to microscopic without having microscopes to look at things that the eye actually couldn't see. Okay, So it was the epitome of smallness. And I read one person who said you could have 700 seeds in one gram of it. But the mustard seed was known for its exponential growth. This here is a picture of a mustard tree or a mustard bush, and it grew really, really rapidly. In fact, in about 90 days' time, it could grow to somewhere around 6 to upwards of 15 feet in size. And so if you had a garden, you actually needed to be really cautious about a mustard seed because you had one or two of those accidentally planted. You went on a short vacation and you wouldn't find much else in your garden. But maybe you're not a botanist or maybe you have a black thumb and not a green thumb. So I tried to think in our day, we, we talk about numbers a little bit more. So I tried to do a little bit of math for you guys. So if one of those seeds is about one millimeter, and I think that's a safe bet because I bet you they're smaller than that. So this is conservative math, okay? If one of those seeds is about one millimeter and it grows to be six feet or two millimeters, that would mean about 2,000% growth in three months, okay? Now, if one of those seeds grew to be 15 feet or five meters, that would be about 5,000% growth, which is a lot. And maybe that speaks to you differently than a picture of seeds and a bush. But it's really not that complicated. And Jesus isn't trying to get us to do math or metric conversions. But Jesus' point is pretty simple here. The kingdom of heaven is something that starts out so inconspicuously small you might not even notice it. But it's not going to stay that way. In fact, very rapidly, we are going to see exponential growth in the kingdom of heaven. It is going to be something that you will not be able to miss if it were planted in your garden. You are not going to be able to miss the effect and the result and the presence of God's kingdom when it is fully matured. It will be an impossibility to miss it. Then in verse 33, Jesus gives us a second parable, an illustration of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also used this illustration, Matthew writes for us. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. So we can't do fun math on this one because we don't know how much yeast Jesus put into it. But here's a picture of a little bit of yeast. Hopefully you can see the small, basically, granules. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this little bit of yeast that a woman worked into three measures of flour. Now, three measures of flour was basically about the maximum amount of flour that one person could reasonably prepare at a time. And in Genesis 18, Sarah prepared three measures of flour. And people estimate that that would amount to about 50 to 60 pounds of flour, which would be enough to feed about 100 to 150 people or feed a small village. 
But here, the image isn't necessarily growth in that same way. But Jesus is making a comparison here that the kingdom of heaven is going to have this same incredible permeation or this incredible transformation whose effects are going to be undeniable. You will not be able to miss them. You see how those two complementary ideas of incredible growth and incredible transformation go together in these two parables. Something so small and inconspicuous is going to become impossible for us to miss. Then we get to verses 34 and 35. And we have this kind of interesting comment from Matthew about Jesus' teaching style. Matthew says, Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. This fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet. I will speak to you in parables. I will explain things hidden since the creation of the world. So here Matthew is quoting Psalm 78, verse 2, which is a psalm of Asaph. So Asaph is the prophet who's being referred to. And in Psalm 78, basically Asaph is writing about how God is going to make known to his people, things that have been hidden, things that have not been properly understood up until this point. But the goal in Psalm 78 is for teaching and for understanding and remembering what God had done. And the goal was that the Israelites could pass on to their children and future generations the truth of what God had done so that they would remember and that they would live rightly because of what God was making known to them. A, a helpful passage also in helping us understand why Jesus is speaking this way is in Mark chapter 4, verse 33. In Mark chapter 4, Mark, this is called a parallel passage, and so Mark is also writing about these same parables that Jesus taught about. But Mark tells us this. He says, Jesus used many similar stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they could understand. So here we see that Jesus' goal is to communicate clearly to people through parables, to communicate clearly things that previously were not understood. This idea of the kingdom of heaven, they understood some big ideas about it, but here Jesus is making even more clear things that have been hidden since the creation of the world. But the trick in the complexity of this is that we've seen, even within Matthew chapter 13, that there were times that Jesus taught and his goal was to obscure some things, to hide things from some people. And Jesus often did try to hide things from people or obscure things from people who called what was good evil or who perverted or twisted what God was doing. And those who were wise in their own eyes, Jesus had no pretense of trying to help them feel like they were even wiser than what they were. But to those who approached Jesus or those who tried to understand what he was saying, those who looked to him with the eyes of faith, we see over and over that Jesus takes the time to explain to his disciples or his followers what he's trying to convey to them, the meaning of what he's trying to say. So that brings us to the question of why. 
Why is Jesus giving us these two parables? What is he trying to communicate to us? And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think Jesus is giving us these parables because he knew that his disciples were going to feel stuck. That they had expectations of what the kingdom of heaven was going to look like. And as they look around, and here's this Jewish teacher walking through the wilderness with 12 people following him, there was probably going to be moments where they said, did we get this right? Even John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who preached about the kingdom of heaven coming, was in prison and sent disciples to ask Jesus, did we get that right? Are you really the one that we were waiting for? Or should we keep waiting for someone else? Because this isn't quite living up to what I thought it would be. Jesus' disciples were reasonably going to be asking some of these questions. And I think Jesus knew that his followers were also going to be asking questions. Did we get this right? When I became a Christian, I thought it sounded like this amazing thing. But I never knew it could be this hard. Maybe I didn't understand what the path of suffering looks like. Or we know that we began our following Christ with faith, but we know there's still so much of me. There's still so much sin within my own heart and my own mind that I need to battle on a regular basis. Is this it? I think Jesus knew that his followers were going to be stuck. And as I thought about being stuck this week, I think if you're a follower of Jesus and you feel stuck, I actually think that's a good thing. And here's why. We know when Jesus came in his first coming that he was victorious in what he did. We know that we need to have faith in him and what he's done. And we know when we've read that there's a, set, a very real sense in which Jesus is reigning in heaven right now. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you're looking around at your life experiences, you're looking around at the ways in which you feel stuck and you're saying, this isn't right. This can't be all there is. I think that's true. And I think it's one of those honest admissions that we need to make. That we are kind of in the middle right now. We're in the middle of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We're in the middle of this time where our faith has not yet become sight. Where we know that there are things on earth that are not the way that they are supposed to be. And they dog us day in and day out. I think it is good for us to recognize and admit the tension that we feel. And I think that's why we have these two parables, to help us address that tension and to give us as followers of Jesus encouragement and a reminder that even though the transformation that God might be doing in your life doesn't seem like it's where you feel like it honestly should be yet, or the injustices, or the wrongs that we see, we know that those are not how they should be. We are in the middle. But we 
are being encouraged by Jesus that even though it might not look like much right now, the day is coming when not one person on the entire globe will be able to miss that Jesus has come back. Every single day, every single hour, and every single moment, we are ticking, ticking, ticking closer to Jesus coming back and to him ruling and reigning on earth as he is in heaven. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's an incredibly exciting thing. That tension that we feel is the tension between knowing Jesus has won the battle, but sin and death and Satan, they're still on the field. The victory parade has yet to commence. And we are eagerly awaiting Jesus' victory parade and his complete and final defeat of those things. So I think we're, we are stuck in a sense. We're waiting Jesus coming back. And we're asking ourselves, is it really worth it? And the answer very, very clearly is yes. It is worth it. When John the Baptist was doubting, Jesus' response to him was the blind see. The lame walk. The deaf hear. We also saw that Jesus raised the dead to life. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, you know personally and experientially that God makes dead hearts new and living. So don't be discouraged if it feels like it's small. Don't be discouraged if you feel like you are, in some senses, even overwhelmed by the tension of, is this it? Because it is all going to be worth it. And as we experience temptation in our daily lives, I think so much of it asks us the question, are we going to choose an alternate path? Are we going to try to find a shortcut to get ahead? Are we going to try to get something that is not ours or get it in the wrong time or get it in the wrong way? Or are we going to trust that what God has in store for us is absolutely, unequivocally better than anything you could ever possibly hope for or imagine? Because that's what I think Jesus is telling us with these parables. That the kingdom of heaven is going to exceed every possible extent of what you could imagine or hope for. In the scriptures, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights, from our heavenly Father. So if there is something good in your life that you can point to, self-sacrifice, selfless love, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the warmth of friendship. If we can now in the midst of our sinful bodies and our sinful minds, if we can experience and recognize those things that are so small, they can be like a mustard seed that are easy to miss. I encourage you and I challenge you to think, how much greater will it be when God comes back, when Jesus is completely victorious and his kingdom is completely consummated, when our faith is made sight, 
and when God will be present among us as his people for all eternity. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so my hope and prayer for you this morning is that if you are a follower of Christ and you feel acutely that tension, that as you go home today and you feel stuck between responding the way you want to and responding the way you know would actually please the Lord, if you're looking at brokenness or depleting health or frustration, know that it is not always going to be that way and that our faith is going to be made sight. However, I want to caution you that if you're not a follower of Jesus, that Jesus coming back and his victory over those who have not bowed their knee to him, you need to be deeply concerned because the presence of God's righteous wrath against sin is a terrifying thing to behold if you don't have someone else as your sacrifice in your place. Place your faith in him today, I implore you, because you will not be able to deny the reality of Jesus' eternal rule and reign from sea to sea. I hope you will be encouraged with these words, and I hope that as you look at the troubles that we experience, that you can remember, I know they feel real today, but when Jesus comes back, they're not even going to be worth talking about compared to the glory that is going to be revealed. And there lies our hope and our encouragement when we feel stuck in frustrating times. Let's pray.